Good morning once again. I want to invite you to to open up your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, if you're using a pew Bible, it is on page 62 on the right-hand side. After five years, I finally took a pew Bible home so I could figure out what page number we're on from week to week. So there we are, page 62 if you're in a pew Bible. Luke 18, we're going to begin in verse 18 of that chapter. Uh, This morning I want to bring you a message that I've entitled, Almost... Almost. In your bulletin, you'll notice that there is an exclamation point after that word in the title, and that's because in the English language we use exclamation points to denote importance, or uh, we use it after words that draw out a strong emotion, or we want to say something with emphasis. And in this particular passage, we have a subject that is of great and solemn importance, and that is eternal life. And so what we have before us this morning is really a landmark passage of Scripture, which is known as the rich young ruler. Some have used and abused this passage of Scripture in order to kind of fit their theological leanings. And so it's important for us to make sure we understand its meaning and let Scripture interpret Scripture. We have the benefit and the blessing of having this particular account written for us in all three synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, so that gives us a more full picture. But more importantly, we need to look at these words and take these words to heart as they have just as much to say to us today as when they fell off the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ some 2,000 years ago. I want us to read our text right away so that we can have it on our minds and our hearts as we begin to look at this. If you're there with me in Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 18, I want to invite you to stand, if you're able to do so, for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 18, God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word says this, A ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And come. Follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, The things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that it would come to bear on our lives today, that we would be more than just hearers of the word, but we would be doers of the word. Lord, we pray by the power of your spirit that you would quicken our minds and soften our hearts to receive what you have for us today in your holy word. We pray these things in the precious name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. It was 
169 years ago today, on January 6, 1850, that a 15-year-old boy was trudging his way up a hill in Colchester, England, trying to make his way to church on the other side of town. A severe snowstorm had come and blanketed the area, and it made it nearly impossible for him to go any further. So instead, he ducked down a side road, hoping to find some shelter, and he landed at the Artillery Street Primitive Methodist Church. He made his way into the sanctuary, and he took his seat in the back of that tiny little church that morning with the dozen or so other parishioners that were brave enough to make it out that day. The storm was so bad that even the pastor was unable to show up that day as well. And so this young man watched from the back of the room as a poor-looking older man, perhaps a tailor or a a shoemaker of some sort, got up, opened his Bible, and he began to preach. And all this man could do with such a short notice was to stick to the text for about 10 minutes because he didn't have too much to say apart from it. But what he did do was preach the word faithfully and confidently. And the text that he preached from that morning was Isaiah 45, 22, which says this, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. At that very moment, those words were all that this young 15-year-old needed to hear. And those words would change his life so that within a year, he would be preaching himself. Another year after that, he would be pastoring a church. And a couple more years after that, he was pastoring a church of over 2,000 people, all by the time he was 19 years old. And beyond that, he would go on for 37 more years of ministry and preach the gospel to millions of people in his lifetime. And that man was none other than the Prince of Preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who would go on to become the greatest English-speaking Baptist preacher who had ever lived. But of that day, when he was just 15 years old, sitting in that tiny church in a snowstorm, he said that the very moment that he heard those words from Isaiah 45, that as the words entered his mind and his heart, he said, quote, There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away, and at that moment I saw the sun, and I could have risen at that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The eyes of his heart were opened on that day. He had entered into the narrow gate, he had drank of the living waters, and he had ate of the living bread, and he followed Jesus Christ. And yet... When we look at the rich young ruler in our account this morning, he was completely the opposite. Whereas Spurgeon wasn't necessarily looking for Jesus on that day, the rich young ruler, we're told in Mark chapter 10, came running to Jesus and knelt before him. Whereas when Spurgeon heard the words of life, he embraced them with joy. But the rich young ruler rejected them from the lips of the Lord of life himself, and he walked away with great sorrow. And whereas Spurgeon committed his entire life to serving Jesus Christ, the rich young ruler came so close, but instead drew back. It did not take that decisive step in following Jesus Christ. 
But what kept him from entering the kingdom of God? How could he come so close, have such an encounter with Jesus Christ himself and fall short of entering the kingdom of God? What hindered him from almost being saved? He's been described as the Bible's hottest evangelistic prospect in the entire scriptures, and yet he was never converted. He came running to Christ. He bowed down in reverence. He spoke to Jesus in respect. He asked what he must do to inherit eternal life. He was poised and ready, and he received nothing but pure truth from the mouth of Jesus. And yet, he was unwilling to admit his sin. He was unwilling to submit to the Lordship of Christ. He was unwilling to forsake it all for the sake of the upward call of Jesus Christ. He simply just wanted to add Jesus to everything else in his life and have Jesus on his own term, and therefore he was not saved. Do you know anyone like this? Do you know of someone who seems to ask the right questions, they seem to have an interest in spiritual things, and they hear the right answers? And they appear on the outside to have their life together, and yet they continue to make the wrong decisions, and Christ does not seem to have preeminence in their life. Or perhaps this could possibly be true of you this morning. Salvation involves a total commitment to forsake sin, to deny yourself to take up your cross daily, and to follow Jesus Christ because Jesus will have no disciple on any other terms but His terms. So let's look at our text in a little bit more detail and find out why this man was almost converted. Notice, first of all, in verse 18, the seeking soul. The seeking soul. It says, a ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now it says a ruler questions him. Matthew describes him as young in Matthew 19, 20 and 22. And both our text here in verse 23 and Mark 10, 22 tells us that he was extremely rich and he owned much property. And so when we compress all of that down, That is where we get the title of this passage of being the rich young ruler. But his being a ruler simply means that he was a man of extraordinary influence in his community. He had clout. He would have been someone of prestige and important. A lot of commentators try to say that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, but there's nothing in our text that indicates that that was so. But he was a man who had a sizable estate, and he would have been seen respectably in his community because he seems to have done well for himself. If there was ever a banquet given, he would have been the one who would have had the best seat in the house. But this man, he comes, he has eternity on his mind. He's got an interest in spiritual things. He's thinking beyond today, and he's open to what's beyond what is seen Today We know from Mark chapter 10 that he comes running to Jesus and he kneels down before him in this display of reverence and respect to Christ as a spiritual teacher. And he asks him, good teacher. He identifies Jesus as a good teacher. He has respect and admiration for Jesus as a teacher, meaning he's a well-respected rabbi of the day. Someone who's an authority of the Old Testament has wisdom and spiritual truths. But then 
when he uses this word good. He's meaning that he believes that Jesus is a person of good standing, someone who's got righteous character, godly character, and that Jesus is a holy man. But there is nothing indicated here that he believes that Jesus is actually the Son of God. He's just one of the myriad of teachers and rabbis running around Israel at the time. But he asked this question, and the subject matter is something that every single person should seek and ask. Because everything in your life hinges upon how you respond to this question. But he asked the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I think most of us would probably be shocked if someone actually came up to us and asked us this question, because most people aren't thinking past today, let alone eternity. But this man, he has certainly come to the right place. And he seems to ask the right question, and certainly ask the right person this all-important question. There is something fundamentally wrong with the question. On the surface, it appears very innocent, but it hinges on the word do. Do. We've seen this question before in Luke 10.25 when a lawyer, uh, someone who's an expert in the law of Moses, he asked the very same question in that text, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so in the same vein, same line of thinking, this rich young ruler was thinking that salvation was going to come by some box that he could just check off. He was thinking that salvation was just something he could gain by what he did. There was just one more deed that was left undone in his life that if he would perform it in his own strength, he would possess eternal life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? So notice, secondly, the searching response. The searching response in verse 19. Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. The goodness of God is a persistent idea and theme found in the Old Testament. First Chronicles 16.34 says, O give thanks unto the Lord, for He is good. Psalm 34.8 says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. And Nahum 1 verse 7 says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and He knows those who take refuge in Him. In him, God has an exclusive claim on goodness in an absolute sense. But it seems that this man has come running to Jesus and he is just some low hanging fruit. He is ripe for the picking. He's been dropped into the lap of Jesus as a potential convert or a disciple. And yet our Lord gives this sort of veiled response. He wants to talk about one of the words that the rich young ruler has used, and it's probably the word that none of us would have ever picked out as being the word. You would have thought that Jesus would say to him, you know what? Hey, let's talk about eternal life. Or let's talk about me being a teacher. But he circles around back, and he wants to talk about the word good. It seems as he wants to strain a gnat. And we read this, and we think to ourselves, What is this confrontational response? What is he trying to do here? There's a purpose in Jesus' question. The great physician, before this man ever ran up to him, he's already performed an x-ray, an MRI, and a CT scan. He's got all of this guy's family medical history. 
He's numbered all the hairs on his head. He's done all the blood work and ran all the tests. And Jesus is ready to perform precision surgery on this man's true problem. And so it's not as as if Jesus is trying to separate himself or distinguish himself from his deity, as some people uh, like to try and use this verse for. They point to this verse and they say, look here. Jesus is saying that he isn't good and the Father is. And therefore, there is no such thing as a trinity. But we have to let Scripture interpret Scripture, and it doesn't take very long for someone with a genuine pursuit of the truth to see that Jesus many other times claimed deity. John 14, 9, he says, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? In John 20 and 28, Thomas cried out, My Lord and my God, and Jesus never once rebuked him. He's called the Emmanuel, God with us, in Matthew 1 and 23, just to name a few. And so Psalm commentators, they go to the opposite end of the spectrum and say that Jesus is absolutely making the connection between he and God and affirming his deity. In other words, it says Jesus is saying, Realize that if you are calling me good, you're calling me God. But if he's trying to really do that, he's doing it in an incredibly veiled way. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, look at verse 20 and what Jesus says to him next, and it helps us to seek what he is pointing at. He says, You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Notice that he doesn't begin in the first part of the Ten Commandments about man's relationship to God. He didn't even challenge this man about whether he had loved the Lord God with all of his heart, with all of his soul, and with all of his strength. The summation of the first part of the Ten Commandments. That might have been too easy because no man in his right mind would ever say, you know what, I have loved God so perfectly with the entirety of my being always. But the latter half of the Ten Commandments Commandments will suffice to diagnose this man's problem, his relationship to his fellow man. And so Jesus picks off a few of the commandments in no particular order. And the man's immediate response in verse 21 is, Oh yeah, I've kept all of those commandments, even done so since I was a youth. So then when we play this conversation back, he comes to Jesus and he says, Good teacher... I want to ask you a question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus has then said, there is no one good, God alone is good. Have you kept the commandments? And in response to the inquiry as to his keeping of the commandments, his response has been this, I'm good. Did you follow what he did? Good teacher, no one is good except God. Have you kept the commandments? Yes, I have, I am good. And so what Jesus has masterfully just drawn up out of this man, he's shown us in him his evaluation of himself. Jesus is showing him that only God is good and only God is the measuring stick for the perfect righteousness and holiness. And the law of God is how we measure ourselves against that perfect holiness. And when we do, we are found wanting. And so when he brings to bear the law of God on this this man, he finds himself in a predicament, which brings us to verse 21, in the spiritual denial. 
The spiritual denial, verse 21, he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. This man is in absolute denial about the condition of his soul. He's prideful. He's smug. He's so arrogant, and he thinks that he has reached perfection and is obeying all of the commandments that God has given. We look at this guy's statement, and we think of that old expression that the kids used to say on the playground, liar, liar, pants on fire. And maybe that's why we teach stop, drop, and roll so much in the school, is because kids are prone to tell a fib or two. But I remember having a debate with a guy one time about conversion, and he actually said to me, My wife has always been a believer. She doesn't remember a time when she didn't believe in Christ. And I asked that guy, surely at some point she had to see her sinfulness and her need for a Savior. At some level, she had to cry out for Jesus for mercy and grace, realizing that she was a sinner. It's almost as if she was immaculately conceived or something, and he could never give me a definitive answer. And it caused my heart to be distressed because I wondered in myself, well, then is she truly saved? Is she self-deceived? Has she just got this, uh, been a moralist because she's coming to church and she does some good Christian things and she talks the language and it's been second nature to her since she was little? Has she ever sinned against the Lord and then felt the washing and the renewing of His forgiveness? Has she ever felt the sustaining grace of God when after not honoring Him like she, has, like she should? Has she ever been warmed by the fires of the love of God after her heart has grown cold? Because there is an inverse relationship between how we view ourselves and how we view God. The higher view we have of ourselves, the lower view we will have of God. And the lower view we have of ourselves, the higher view we will have of God will become in our lives. Or in other words, the closer and the closer you get to understanding the absolute perfect holiness of God, the deeper and the deeper you see your own sin and depravity. This is what caused Isaiah to fall on his face and say, Woe is me, because he got a glimpse of the holiness of God. And so this young wife It was kind of akin to what this rich young ruler was doing and saying, I've never had a sin problem where I needed to cry out to God for mercy and salvation, and I've done it since I was a child. He's got a high view of himself. This man is self-deceived. He's full of spiritual pride about his self-righteousness, that he doesn't see himself standing in need of salvation that would come as a result of him acknowledging his sin, admitting that he needs forgiveness of sin, He's a carbon copy of the Pharisee in verse 11 that thinks he's got it all together. He's not like those other people. He's checked all the boxes off when in truth he really hasn't. Because in Matthew's account, he adds these words to the response in Jesus, What am I still lacking? It's as if he's saying to Jesus, I've got it all down so far. What other box do I have to check off? It doesn't even remotely occur to him that his single greatest need is to have a right evaluation of the holiness of God and the depravity and sinfulness of his true self. We'll notice in verse 22, Jesus gives him a simple requirement. Verse 22 says, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack 
Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And again, people use this verse wrongly to say that every Christian everywhere should live in abject poverty. But Jesus gives him one thing, not five things, not ten things, just one thing you still lack. In order for you to receive eternal life, in order to receive salvation and to be able to enter the kingdom of God, you just need to do this one thing and only this one thing in order to be saved. And the clear implication is that this rich young ruler has not done this one thing. It's not that he's done 99 of them and he just needs to get that one to get, get him over the top and that God is grading on a curve and he is so close. Now, is Jesus saying, yeah, you've kept the commandments, but if you want to inherit eternal life, you have to do this in your life, is keep all, this command, all these commandments that I've just told you about, and then give everything that you have to the poor and become my disciple. Is Jesus saying that the way to inherit eternal life is keeping all the commandments, and then in addition to that, giving away everything that you have? If... He is. There has not been many, if any, Christians in the last couple thousand years. And there's probably not too many of us in this room who wouldn't be in trouble if the requirement was to give away everything to the poor. He is not saying that this is how you buy your way into heaven. That's not what Jesus is saying. What is Jesus doing here? Jesus does not accept this man's assertion that he's kept the commandments. He doesn't believe what he's done. What he does is he asks him to do something, and he asks him to do something that's very hard. He asks him to do something that God has asked Christians to do occasionally from time to time over thousands of years, but he has asked him to do it not because doing that thing is the way that you inherit eternal life. He asks him to do it because the thing that he is going to ask him to do reveals something about his heart. Because this young man just said, I'm good. I'm a commandment keeper. I've kept all the commandments. And so what Jesus is saying to this man is that anything and everything that is most important to you, anything that has become your God and your idol, anything that takes preeminence in your life over and above God has to be removed. There can only be one number one in your life, and it has to be Jesus Christ. Jesus will not play second fiddle in your life. He must be the conductor of the orchestra of your life. Jesus will not be a backseat occupant in your car. He must be the driver. Jesus Christ must have preeminence in your life. Anything and everything in your life, whether it's money, Your retirement account, your house, your work, sports, your family, your kids, and even, yes, your grandkids. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Anything and everything in your life that pushes Jesus Christ as having the chief seat in your heart has become your idol. Is there anything in your life this morning that you find consumes your heart more than Jesus Christ? 
Is there anything in your life that is causing you to hedge out Jesus and place him into a corner in your heart? Has the things of this world and the pursuit of of having it all become that which consumes your thoughts? Jesus would say to you as well, go, sell everything, and come back once you've done that because you've got idols in your life. Jesus said, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot, you cannot serve God in wealth. And so the test for this here is obviously is for the meditations of this man's heart, the consuming thoughts of his mind. And obviously, what is on the altar of this man's heart was his money and his possessions. He cared more about financial gain than he did about spiritual gain. He cared more about his stuff than he did about his soul. Perhaps you've known people like that. Or perhaps you are someone like that yourself this morning. It is not wrong to have money. It is wrong to have a love for that money. Even those who don't have money can have an inordinate love for money. It's all they think about. What would life be like if I got rich? It's all they think about. But then he tells this man to come follow me. It's in the present tense, meaning from this step forward. For the rest of your life, you are beginning a journey that will take your entire life. And notice that follow me is not a passive activity. It's it's to follow and keep following. You're not a spectator. You're a participant. You're not sitting on the sidelines, but you're in the game. You're to move out. Don't look back at the decision that you made for me or that hand that you raised or that card that you signed and say to yourself, I did that way back then. I'm good. Because all you tried to do was buy yourself some fire insurance. But what are you doing in the here and now, pressing on towards the upward call in Jesus Christ? Are you growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ? Are you satisfied where you are today, spiritually speaking? Are you seeing the fruits of the Spirit more and more in your life? Are you taking every thought captive and bringing them into conformity to Christ? To follow Christ is a call for total, complete, radical commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you are to do it daily. Notice verse 22, the sad ending. Or is it 23 rather? But when he had heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. This is a sad ending ending. He was almost saved. He was almost in the kingdom. He was so close. And then his countenance fell. Deep gloom overtook his heart and came into the expression of his face. And Mark tells us that he went away grieving. What a contrast to what Spurgeon experienced. Spurgeon was ready to sing with joy. And this man left saddened, but by what was required of him to do. And why was he very sad? Because it says that he was extremely rich. He couldn't let go of all that he had accumulated. His grip 
and his security was found in the things of this world. This should be a warning to us this morning as well. Money does not buy you happiness. Having a rich estate and having everything that you want in life and all the comforts and all the ease does not bring peace to your soul. George Swinock, one of the Puritans, once said this. He said, esteem your value as you are related to the other world. Rate yourself by your treasure in heaven, by the pardon of your sins, by your interest in Christ, and by your durable riches in His righteousness. These are the only mercies which are worth a thousand millions. This young man had accepted the devil's offer that he had gave to Jesus Christ. To live for this world, to live for the possessions of this world, rather to worship God and Him alone, and he would not let it go. His heart was dead-bolted to the things of this world, and he would not unlock it and let it go. And so with one simple test, Jesus explodes this man's self-evaluation of himself. Now, don't mistake what Jesus is saying here. He is not saying that if you have money, that you can't get into heaven. But if money is number one and more important to you than God or Christ, you have not inherited the kingdom of God or eternal life. Jesus will only give His riches to those who come to Him with an empty hand and for those who cry out like that tax collector who say, Have mercy on me, a sinner. And we're going to pick up there next time, but I want to ask you this. Have you gave up everything to follow Jesus Christ? As you sit there this morning, is there something that comes to your mind that you have allowed to crowd out Jesus from your heart? Something that you possess, something that you desire, some darling sin that is reigning over your life. Something else has taken priority in your life. Jesus is saying to you this morning that He must occupy the throne of your heart. He must be the one in whom your eyes are fixated and riveted. Satan is devoting 168 hours a week trying to find something in this world to keep you from putting your gaze on Jesus Christ whether it be entertainment or leisure or politics or whatever it may be, he is out there like a lion seeking whom he can devour. Do you find your mind worrying about money and making money and keeping money and saving money? Or are you drawn to the Lord's Savior, Jesus Christ? Does eternity loom on the horizon of your mind so much that you live completely radically and differently from the rest of the world? When you evaluate your heart this morning, what occupies it the most? Is it God or is it something else? Jesus says, you must get rid of it and put me there in its place. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word how it corrects us, it rebukes us, it places us on the right path, Lord. And I just pray this morning, if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't have you sitting on the throne of their heart, 
that today would be a decisive day. That they would cast aside the things of the world, the cares of their world, of this world, and that they would pursue you above all things. Father, we thank you for your word. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.